Hey crew, before we start our latest mission, I want to remind you that you can get updates on the show, plus news and reviews from the world of Trek by following us on Twitter and liking us on Facebook. Go to twitter.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D or facebook.com at E-I-S-T-P-O-D or both and click the appropriate box to get on board. Also, be sure to subscribe to the show on iTunes or your media platform of choice. And when you do, give us a review. Would you be so kind? At the very least, give us a rating because that's how iTunes knows who's doing a good job and good jobbers get more exposure. So if you like the show, please give us a review or a rating. And finally, if you really like the show and you want to help it expand, click on over to patreon.com forward slash E-I-S-T-P-O-D where you'll see our Patreon page. Money might be worthless in the 24th century, but we're not quite there yet. And your contributions can go a long way towards keeping this show going and bringing you weekly looks at the world of Star Trek. There are many different tiers at which you can sign on and many rewards available up to and including the possibility of being a guest on the show yourself. So head on over to patreon.com forward slash EIST pod and check that out. Any questions you can contact the show at EIST pod at gmail.com and now let's get underway. It's worked so far but we're not out yet. I want to know what you're thinking there are some things you can't hide I want to know what you're feeling Tell me what's on your mind Hailing Frequencies Open, and welcome to Enterprising Individuals, the podcast where we boldly go into excruciating detail about the series, characters, and stories of the Star Trek universe. I'm your host, Caliban, and when it comes to Commodores, it's a close race, but I'm still picking Lionel Richie over Matt Decker. (laughs) I'm joined again on this episode by science fiction writer and editor Scott Pearson, whose most recent Star Trek original series ebook, The More Things Change, is available on Amazon.com, iBooks, and wherever ebooks are sold. Scott is also a podcaster. He's the podcast Generations Geek, along with his daughter Ella, which is available on the Chronic Rift Podcast Network. Scott, welcome back to the show. Happy to be here, as always. Welcome back aboard. Today we'll be discussing The Doomsday Machine, the sixth Mm -hmm. episode of the second season of Star Trek, the original series. Last time you were on the show, we talked about The Trouble with Tribbles. Uh, It's it's a great episode, but it's perhaps one whose stakes were somewhat lower than this episode's. (laughs) Uh, A single planet (laughs) and a shipment of grain hung in the balance. But in The Doomsday Machine, the exact opposite is true. Um, Ostensibly, the entire galaxy is at risk from the titular machine, which is a weapon from another galaxy entirely. Scott, I assume you're familiar with the idea of a berserker probe? Yep. Uh, Do you care to summarize the idea for our listeners? Uh, The idea, as as particularly... Uh, addressed in this episode is the building of a huge uh, weapon that's meant to be sort of a mutually assured destruction kind of weapon. Mm -hmm. Uh, The kind of weapon that you never really want to unleash. Right, (laughs) yes. And uh, because bad things always ensue, and hence in this episode, uh, we we can only infer so much about what happened in the background, but it seems that this uh, giant berserker thing has uh, outlived whatever it was supposed to do and is just now cutting its own swath of destruction through whatever it happens to find. Sure. 
Yeah, I think uh, mathematician and physicist um, John von Neumann, I think, originally proposed the idea of an automated probe that could, we could send it off uh, to another, uh, maybe galaxy, but solar system, certainly, and other stars, and it could replicate itself, create a second one when it reaches its destination, which could then do the same, and you could colonize or at least explore the entire galaxy in a matter of thousands of years instead of millions. And the sort of downside of that, which was proposed by, um, at least initially by author Fred Saberhagen, was that you would get the weaponized version of that, which we're looking at in this episode, which is bad news. If you just send off a killing machine on its own and you're not really in charge of it, that seems pretty irresponsible. Why this episode in particular um, did you choose this episode to talk about? Oh, I have loved this episode since the first time I saw it when I was a kid. And watching it now, I mean, I, I, I don't know how many times I've watched it over the years, but now this time is the first time I've rewatched it in, in a long time. Mm-hmm. And it completely holds up for me. I I love, I love the episode. It's... Um, uh, it's very exciting. It's the the storytelling is very dramatic and concise. It packs a lot of stuff into this into the time it has. Right. Uh, I mean, even just the opening, the tag scene before the credits is such concise storytelling. They've picked up a distress call. They're trying to find it. They start coming across all of these ruined planets that sort of leads them you know, across this uh, path of destruction. They finally find the ship that they're, that sent out the distress signal. And it's like all this stuff happens in just that short pre-credit sequence and it sets up everything that's going to go wrong <laughs> for the rest of the episode. Right. Yeah, it's very economical uh, in that way. Uh, Well, let's give some facts about the episode. Uh, It is the sixth episode of the second season. It first aired on the 20th of October in 1967. Uh, The star date for this episode is 4202.9. It was directed by a series veteran Mark Daniels, and it was written by Norman Spinrad, who we will talk about in a little bit. Scott, can you, in, let's say, maybe 50 words or less, give us a synopsis of the episode? As I already mentioned, they pick up a distress signal, go in search of it, discover the ruined planets, finally discover the uh, ship that's taken great uh, battle damage. And the Commodore, Matt Decker, is in command of the ship. He's suffered a complete breakdown due to the loss of his entire crew. Then, of course, the ship itself rears its ugly head, and it turns into a... I'm going far over 50 words. (laughs) It turns into this great dual cat and mouse game between uh, with with the Enterprise, the uh, damaged ship, the Constellation, and the Doomsday Machine itself. But also it's a cat and mouse game between Spock and the Commodore on the Enterprise struggling for command of the ship. Hijinks ensue. (laughs) Exactly. That's exactly right. Yeah, there are a lot of levels to what's going on, even though the premise is is laid out, and I think it's pretty simple. And I've heard this described, I mean, I think it is, something of a bottle episode, um, which is an episode that's designed to use existing sets, often in a minimal fashion, to save money. Um, I think that uh, episode writer Norman Spinrad said in some interviews that he was hired for the job specifically because he could write to a budget, and he could use those limiting factors and still deliver a good script. Oh yeah, because the 
the Constellation, the second ship, is the same class as the Enterprise. So all they have to do is mess up, you know, dirty up the uh, sets, the uh, sets of the Enterprise, right. stand in for the wrecked uh, ship. So it, yeah, it's great in that regard. Uh, Spinrad said that Roddenberry liked the episode so much he actually commissioned him to write another money-saving episode. Uh, that had two requirements. It would use the existing jungle set on the Paramount backlot, and it would feature Milton Berle in a dramatic <laughs> turn, which I find insane. But apparently Milton <laughs> Berle also had aspirations uh, to be a dramatic actor and was regarded as some as being a fairly talented drama- dramatic actor, just one who didn't get to use that instrument very much. Yeah. Um, I just I still wonder what that would be like. Uh, <laughs> I was trying to picture that in my mind. Um Let's talk about the titular Doomsday Machine. We mentioned the Berserker probe idea before, and Spinrad says that he wasn't specifically thinking of Saberhagen's um, Berserkers when he, he wrote this. It was actually drawn from a script for a novelette that he'd written called The Planet Eater, which is what he had pitched to Roddenberry for the episode. And mm-hmm. Moby Dick has a huge influence uh, in this, um, as it, as well as in... The TOS Ep Obsession, and of course, Wrath of Khan, First Contact. I think even Star Trek Beyond was influenced a little by Moby Dick. Why do you think Star Trek writers continue to draw from that well? Well, some of these great stories, like Moby Dick, or stories of great obsessions like that, that perhaps Moby Dick is is one of the greatest uh, examples. Um, Some of these things are just so good. They resonate so well with people that uh, you, you you see things reused. Uh, you know, like, say, Frankenstein. Again, you know, the reason why that story is still around, still being remade and influencing things, is that it captures some core part in our psyche that ju- it just grabs us for some reason. Yeah. And uh, in the case of Moby Dick and the various Star Trek episodes that you could link to it, I think that we've all, to varying degrees in our lives, had some thing <laughs> that annoys us or or something that we perceive that we lost to something that we wish we could change or, or, or redo. Uh, and And so you relate to it, even though in the examples of Moby Dick or the Doomsday Machine, it gets taken to an extreme where it obviously is very unhealthy for the people. Right. Uh, but but on a certain level, you, you understand the redemption that these people are looking for. Yeah. You know, Ahab is looking more for just his own personal vengeance, but with Decker, he's looking to redeem himself as someone who lost his entire crew and you know in the course of that he's also going to get revenge against the machine right i think it's also interesting in this example of what you were talking about that we we see this from an outside character like we're our crew is reacting to decker as an obsession this isn't something like um kirk being obsessed in obsession Mm -hmm. or um, or something like that so our character's suffer the same problem that Decker tries to solve by destroying himself. Um, but they sort of get around it by not s- succumbing to that sort of revenge mm-hmm. and that obsession and, and relying on each other and not trying to go it on their own. What do you think about the look and the design of the doomsday machine itself? <clears throat> I, I remember being <laughs> just, just from having seen the episode, uh, you know, when I was a kid, just remembering, Oh yeah, space log. There we go. I remember that. 
<laughs> yeah, some people have referred to it as an ice cream cone. <laughs> you know, um, I, I hesitate because on the one hand, I love this episode, and I think that in the end, the uh, the design is very effective in its simplicity. Sure. But on the other hand, I can also see how at a glance if you weren't told beforehand what a terrible monstrosity this thing is, sure. when you get your first shot of just this gray cone, you might say, well, what? Right. You know, because they also can't, um, it's hard to get a, uh, uh, it's hard to get an, imme- an immediate sense of how large it is. Right. Because if you just have a shot of this cone against the backdrop of the stars, you don't get how big it is until you start getting some shots of the Enterprise being in closer. I mean, they they reference how big it is, but yeah. you don't get the visual impact. Yeah, and they have to they have to hype it up. They, they, it's miles long and it's made of uh, impenetrable neutronium and it fires anti-proton beams and they they make it out to be very formidable. As we were talking about the obsession that Decker has, his performance <laughs> was was. Was so I just love his performance. I mean, he he really sold it. And one of the clever things we were talking earlier about concise storytelling is there's a couple of references before he appears on screen. Kirk talks about him, so Kirk kind of pumps him up. It's like you know, this is going to be the guy. This is you know, and then when you first meet him, and he's completely broken. Right. And, and crushed and, 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 and breaks down even further on screen. It just makes it, it, it that much more uh, dramatic. It just impacts you that you, you know that this isn't some poor officer that just somehow got into the captain's chair. You already have the sense of him as being someone who has earned his rank of Commodore. Right. And then you see him just this completely broken character. Yeah, he's played by William Wyndham in the episode, and he, I mean, he does have a really, boy, it's a really loopy portrayal, and it comes right up against, like, complete ridiculousness, but I, I do think it works because of what you described, them selling him as uh, this very formidable, like, admirable guy who has just been totally destroyed by this. Um, I looked up a quote uh, that came from uh, Wyndham, who said that he didn't really see the Moby Dick allegories in the show. He just thought that it was kind of silly with the planet eater and the spaceships. And so he was playing it very cartoonishly and it wasn't until later on, I think at like a convention that somebody pointed out to him that, so you're, you're kind of like captain Ahab in outer space. And he's like, Oh, okay. (laughs) Yeah, that makes sense. He's also like captain Queeg in outer space from the cane mutiny, which they reference even once he gets back aboard the enterprise and, and calms down a little bit, he starts reasserting himself and he's, um, fiddling with these microtape cards that they use um, uh, for data, and he's fiddling with those in his hands, and it's an echo of Captain Quig's uh, little steel balls that that he fiddles with in his hands. For I don't, you know, for people who are, aren't familiar with the Cane Mutiny, uh, there is a film version starring Humphrey Bogart as a, a ship's captain who has a moment of cowardice and then tries to cover it up by cracking down on his crew and just getting more and more paranoid 
Right. And and there's a fabulous scene late in the story where he's uh, uh, testifying then during his court martial, and uh, and he's sitting in a chair and he's got these steel balls that he's got in his hand, and it puts you right in mind when you see uh, Decker sitting in the captain's chair and fiddling with these uh, memory tapes, microtapes. Right. If Decker starts muttering about strawberries, they're really yeah. in trouble then, yeah. <laughs> uh, let's talk about the effects in the episode really quick. Um, the effects were uh, remastered uh, recently or fairly recently for the uh, re-release of the uh, original series, and they added quite a few sort of changes to it um, in terms of computer effects. It's um, it's kind of sad to not see the uh, the kind of uh, AMT uh, model kit <laughs> <laughs> type ship, but did you, uh, did you like the effects? I really did like the effects. Um, there were a couple of times I think that they had the Enterprise get a little bit too swoopy. Okay, sure. <laughs> and and I think that they, I think they toned down some of those uh, as as they as they worked their way through the series. Right. Um, because. Uh, if you have the Enterprise swoop around too much, you kind of lose the sense of how big the ship is. Uh, but the nice thing about it is that they were able to uh, create uh, additional shots, I think, that, that helped give that sense of scale. Yeah, yeah. Overall, I, I really enjoyed the upgraded effects. This was the first time... I just watched the episode again last night, preparing for the uh, the podcast and it was the first time i'd watched uh, the episode the entire episode uh, with the remastered effects and uh, overall it was very smooth um, they didn't update the uh, the doomsday machine they just pretty much captured the the, the very uh, sort of low budget <laughs> right <laughs> look that it had yeah in the original and you know they were able to make it a little bit. Obviously, they were able to make it a little bit cleaner. Particularly when you get the shots down the mon, you see the energy yes. in there. Yes. You know that that looked more impressive than the 1960s special effects. But I mean, I love the originals as well. And I I I don't have any problem watching old movies or TV shows and just enjoying the effects for the effects that they had at the time. Yeah, and yeah, the, part of their uh, saving money for this episode was when they needed a second uh, Constitution class ship. They just used an off-the-shelf AMT model kit <laughs> that anyone could buy at the time. That uh, you know was only about a foot long, and it it looks like they just you know like took a lighter to it, <laughs> right? And, yeah, and burned the plastic. Yeah. But and, uh, and they even just swapped the numbers around because the ship's registry number is one zero one seven instead of one seven zero one. So, <laughs> and it's it's great. I mean, I never I, when I was a kid that never bothered me. I thought it was really effective. Um, but it was cool to see a more fully realized uh, other ship in this one with more realistic looking damage. And there's a great shot where one of the pieces of rubble from the planets that the uh, doomsday machine has destroyed just bounces off the saucer section of the constellation. Yeah. And it's this great thing because just sort of subliminal, <clears throat> subliminally, 
it just underscores the fact that this ship is just kind of dead. You know, you don't see a meteor or something bounce off the Enterprise unless it's in serious trouble and has lost all shields and, and that sort of stuff. So it's just a little bit of a tweak, and yet it it, it had a, uh, an emotional layer to it. Yeah, it's really, it's it's derelict, yeah. Um, we see uh, this other ship, which is a Constitution class, and it's called the, the USS Constellation, which is a little confusing because later on in TNG, there's a starship uh, class called called the Constellation. Um, is there? A, do you have a favorite uh, class of ship uh, in Star Trek? Hmm. I would probably just go with the Constitution class, just because since since I started watching Star Trek when I was a kid and grew up on the original series that's always going to have a very special place in my heart. So sure. I tend to go to that as the quick answer on anything. When someone asks, what, what's your favorite whatever out of Star Trek? Right. It, it tends to go to the original series. But I was also, I mean, it's still a Constitution class, but I also love the refit that when they uh, started with Star Trek The Motion Picture yeah. and, and did the sort of slight update to the uh, Enterprise design, I love that as well. Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, I, I love the Constitution as well. Um, but the and I like you said before, I, I really like the old effects. But the '60s TV uh, Enterprise is like just on that other side of sort of uh, antique sci-fi with like the ray gun <laughs> dish and everything. And so, yeah, they did a really great job uh, updating it for the films. Uh, fun fact about this episode: there are actually six alumni who have appeared in Twilight Zone episodes. Uh, in this uh, episode, uh, William Shatner, uh, Nimoy, James Doohan, George Takei, uh, Wyndham, and then also Jerry Catron, who plays Montgomery, who is the uh, guy who gets oh. uh, whooped by Decker when he's uh, going trying to escape. <laughs> he uses the uh, patented cough punch and takes him takes him out. And oh, the, I love the uh, the Trek foo that they used in that fight <laughs> yes, sequence. Yes. And it was, it was, it's distinct from Shatner's own sort of Shatner foo that he uses when he fights with someone, but they had like all these little weird poses that you were, they, you know, they were trying to capture the sense of martial arts, but it doesn't seem like anyone did any research. It just looks like random <laughs> odd hand gestures. <laughs> right. N not that I'm, I don't know anything about martial arts, but, <laughs> but, but, uh, from watching, martial arts movies compared to watching that i've never seen those moves <laughs> like busted out by uh, jet lee or jackie chan or something you know what's <laughs> right right there's a there's a, kind of a desperation uh, to um decker's moves which i think fits the sort of situation he's in but he's a little more um kind of sneaky and underhanded i think than kirk mm -hmm. would be in that situation but they i was watching the episode and the the high quality um transfer or the version of the episode really lets you know that they practice that scene a lot because there's a lot of shoe scuff marks on that floor oh. <laughs> when they're when they're fighting <laughs> there's a there's a mystery to be solved about decker uh in my opinion which leads me to my crackpot theory for this episode is will decker from star trek the motion picture matt decker's son it's kind of been, well, it's one of those things where it's not canon. Yeah. It was never stated outright on screen, but I believe that was the intention. I'm trying to remember now if maybe in the novelization that Roddenberry did 
of the motion picture if that was in there. I can't remember, and I don't have that book at hand. I believe it. I believe it was, yeah, in, yeah. in Roddenberry's novelization. And so in the fiction, uh, that's it's been pretty much picked up. And so in the books, you will see references to that. Uh, but as far as what happens on screen... It's not there. Yeah. I think it was part of the background um, information sort of Bible for phase two as well, that they were going to have that be the connection there. Yeah. So that's a thing that's lost. But, I mean, it happens sometimes when you're creating something with many fathers and mothers. Um, <laughs> yep. This episode uh, marks the debut of the re- uh, redesigned engineering set, which is a little more extensive than before. Um, also, I think the auxiliary control room is first seen in this episode when they go to the control room on board the Constellation. Mm-hmm. And also, this is the debut of the green wraparound uh, tunic that Kirk wears, that Shatner wears, which is a differentiation between the normal uniform. And I'm sure there's a lot of theories about it, but do you do you know why they developed this other sort of shirt for him to wear with no good explanation? The rumor that I've never researched myself, but I remember hearing a rumor that uh, the shirt, that that the wraparound was a little bit more forgiving so that if Shatner had gained a little weight, (laughs) like over a break or something, then he could put on the uh, wraparound. But yeah, I've I've never really (laughs) investigated (laughs) myself. I, I don't know if Shatner would admit to that or not if it were true. Well, yeah. I was watching, I actually watched all of the films uh, recently, kind of leading up to the 50th anniversary, and I was surprised to find in, in researching some of them that it's a long-standing kind of gag now that, you know, Shatner sucking in the gut, you know, and trying to look like he did in the 60s, but <laughs> when he would do those movies, um, maybe the latest ones, not so much, but he did look pretty good for an older guy. And he talked about how, yeah, he would he wasn't filming anything, you know, T.J. Hooker's off the air or whatever. He'd kind of let himself go, but he would always try really hard to sort of get back into shape mm-hmm. um, for, for shooting. And I think it works. I mean, he looks pretty good in, like, two through four. After that, it kind of starts to dip yep. down a little bit. But, okay, that, that would make sense then, to have it be <laughs> a more forgiving garment uh, for the future captain. Um, the, the episode opens with Captain Kirk being formed uh, in, of a distress call by Lieutenant Palmer? Yep. No Uhura in this episode, which was interesting. Um, do you know what was behind that decision? Uh, not specifically. I, I would assume that just for whatever reason, she needed the time off. I don't, you know. Yeah. yeah every once in a while, there'll be an episode without one of the uh, other characters. And depending on the episode, it's it can be... You might not even notice necessarily, yeah. Uh, but in this episode, the uh, when the communications officer is given quite a bit of work. <laughs> oh yeah, no kidding. Yeah, then then you really are aware that uh, it's not Ahura, and you know fans kind of love those things. You know, the Palmer has appeared a lot in novels over the years. Oh sure, okay. Uh, because it's it's fun to pick up those uh, s- sort of tertiary characters like Palmer or Kyle, you know, Kyle gets great uh, scenes in this episode on, on the transporter since Scotty is beams over onto the constellation. They need someone else running the transporter. And uh, Kyle also has been used a lot over the years in novels. Yeah. 
I heard, well, uh, the, the role was played by Elizabeth Rogers, um, and I had heard in an interview um, with her that she had said that Nichelle Nichols had, I think, like a concert or like a singing performance ah. in New York. And mm-hmm. so not being under contract specifically with Desi Lou at the time, she, you know, they... She was a long-going, uh, standing character, but they could kind of bring her in and out whenever. And so she told the producers that she just couldn't be on the show. She had this gig to do. And so they brought Elizabeth Rogers in and I think gave her a lot of screen time as sort of a threat replacement, <laughs> in the words of Rogers. Like, uh, you're great and all, but you know we can replace you. We don't need you necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, in the original uh, supplemental materials, they list um, Palmer as being from Alpha Centauri. Which I got excited about because I feel like Alpha Centauri is kind of the redheaded stepchild, like fifth, <laughs> fifth founder of the UFP. Uh, they're supposed to be right up there with Telar and Andoria and Vulcan and Earth as a founder of the Federation. And I used to play the, oh boy, I think it was like Last Unicorn Games RPG back in the day. And my character mm. was uh, a, a Centaurian who are a different race, distinct from humans, but are essentially humanoid in nature. But I think that's all been overwritten now. I think in Enter- uh, Enterprise, they established that there's just a human colony or um, human settled Alpha Centauri, essentially. Yeah, it was always... I think that in the original series, it was kind of muddled as to yeah. whether you were supposed to understand the Centaurians as a separate species or as humans. And, and of course, you know, it's exacerbated by the fact that uh, when you had a 1960s TV budget, you didn't always do much to make the aliens appear alien. And so right. you had you had some that were obviously alien, like the Andorians with antennas, but then you had others that were, you know, they didn't do anything to them. They just introduce them as being you know from some other planet right and so yeah that was that was one of those things where it was always kind of up in the air what exactly are these alpha centaurans <laughs> right uh that yeah that got kind of uh, retconned something else that kind of got retconned but i miss is since we feature a, a different uh star trek or excuse me, a Federation ship in this episode, we see their insignia. And I kind of miss the old ship-specific insignias uh, from the original series. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. Like, they all have their own sort of sigil. Yeah, and they they let that go as they moved into the movies and stuff. And, and uh, I wonder uh, if that'll continue in Discovery, if um, Discovery will have its own insignia, or we'll see that with other, other ships. I, I hope it has its own insignia because it's it's if it's going to be uh, true to the canon, um, well, and of course, canon is what's ever on screen, and they're they're going to have a lot of leeway to do whatever they want, and and uh, but um, I would like to see it since it's from that period where everything we've seen before they had separate insignia. Then I would like to see a new insignia for Discovery. Yeah, certainly. Um, there is a very uh, firmly stated uh, sort of theme in this episode about the idea of um, a doomsday weapon. I mean, it's literally called the doomsday machine, which is synonymous with the idea of the hydrogen bomb. And as you mentioned, mutually assured destruction um, represented by the doomsday machine. Mm-hmm. And I, th- I feel like the crew, even though they're fascinated by this device, which comes ostensibly from another galaxy, they make some pretty quick, logical narrative leaps <laughs> to immediately in one scene they immediately deduce like what this machine's purpose is and, and yeah what they do about it yeah there's a line between concise storytelling 
and having your characters just pull stuff out of thin air to keep the plot moving ahead. Right, right. <laughs> and when Kirk just decides the entire sort of backstory <laughs> on his own in a couple of sentences, yeah, that kind of uh, tipped over the edge there, but... But they do live in the 23rd century, and I'm sure they're all sci-fi fans. So they've read this stuff. They know this stuff. <laughs> I thought that Leonard Nimoy uh, as Spock and also the character of Spock was really great in this episode. It's an episode where Spock essentially gets in a shouting match with a superior officer, but it's sort of the Vulcan version of that. I mean, he plays it completely yes. straight and, and emotionless, which I thought was a, a great sort of portrayal by him. And he, with his even-handedness, he even undercuts his own strategy to sort of maintain control of the Enterprise, because after he's relieved by Decker, McCoy tries to point out, well, we can declare him unfit. And Spock, ever even-handed, says, well, we haven't, you haven't examined him, have you? <laughs> and it's like, Spock, same team here, come on. I love that scene on so many levels. Um, I love the, the interaction between Spock and Decker for, in, in you know, um, as you say, Spock is just being so, you know, Vulcan. Mm-hmm. I love how, you know, we're so used to seeing uh, Spock and McCoy butt heads. Right. But in this instance, <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's kind of with the, with the, with the whole, it's the same thing with the whole crew. Uh, you might have like the person in your, in your squad that you like to make fun of or tease, but if someone outside your squad, <laughs> says something right. then then you know then things are going to get real and so <laughs> we have in other episodes seen the humans have great difficulties with the way spock commands from his vulcan standpoint right but in here as soon as decker starts butting up against spock you see everyone everyone on the bridge is like you see them tense up oh yeah yeah they cut to everybody yeah and and then when things start getting uh, more problematic between Spock and Decker and who's in command, you see McCoy just completely throw in with Spock. He's just, you know, there's just no hesitation at all. And so it's a great Spock-McCoy moment. <laughs> and right. then it gets that extra layer because then when Spock pulls the rug out from under McCoy, who's perfectly willing to just lie and and declare Decker unfit for command, <laughs> and Spock <laughs> reminds him, "Well, you would have to, you know, pr- you'd have to show your work, basically." <laughs> and right. then, and McCoy is, "Well, Spock, you know, I haven't had time to examine him," and, and so then then you see McCoy turn, and now he's just as annoyed with Spock as he ever is for <laughs> right. for being Mister uh, Logical. What a, such a great range of stuff going on there. Yeah. They actually agree on this one, and they still can't get along. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh yeah, he also uh he gets some some great lines in this episode too. I like that exchange between them where Spock talks about um random chance operating in their favor and McCoy's like, "Well, we got lucky." He's like, "Yeah, that's, that's what I said." <laughs> <laughs> that that's a, that's a trope of military fiction um from Kane Mutiny to to Crimson Tide to many examples in Star Trek where the commanding officer has gone too far and has to be checked by his subordinates. Do do you think it's believable in this episode? Yes. Uh, well, well, they do that great thing that makes it, um, adds another layer to it, is that he's a Commodore. 
Right. And so not only does he outrank Spock, he outranks Kirk. And then that becomes another great source of tension a little bit later in the episode when Kirk is finally able to uh, communicate with the Enterprise and he finds out that Decker has taken over the Enterprise and he's like saying, no, Spock's in command. And then Decker gets to pull rank on Kirk. Right. And... Since you since you understand so much why Decker wants his revenge on the Doomsday Machine, Spock's logical, you know, <laughs> reserved way of approaching the problem, it just isn't going to fly with him. And and so yeah, I find it completely believable that that this Commodore would throw his weight around and use whatever the excuse or regulation he could right yeah. to take over and do what he wants it also kind of ties back into something we talked about um the last time you're on the show which is that kirk has no patience for bureaucracy or bullies <laughs> uh, in general and he yeah. respects the chain of command but when he finds out that decker's just come aboard his ship and is pushing everybody around he's immediately like put spock on i want to talk to spock where's spock yeah um there's a there's kind of there's a, it's light on comedy this episode although there are some kind of comedic sort of touches and moments did you have a favorite yes. a joke or, or comedy bit there's a few things that are that are amusing and and it's interesting because you know like you say it's a it's a very tense dramatic episode yeah. and even some of the spots that are humorous are taking place right in the middle of all this stuff uh, yeah. one of my favorite bits is when Kirk has already uh, set the constellation on self-destruct, and they're going to use it to destroy or attempt to destroy the Doomsday Machine. And he's trying to get beamed aboard, aboard the Enterprise, and the transporter keeps burning out. Right. And he says, you know, beam me aboard. And then he's kind of waiting and waiting, and he's like, gentlemen, I suggest you beam me aboard. <laughs> right, right. And it's kind of played for laughs. Yeah. Uh, but you know he's about to get blown up and killed. Um, right. Another one of the uh, lighthearted things. Well, McCoy gets a couple in the confrontation between Spock and Decker and McCoy that we were talking about moments ago. Decker tells McCoy that he's out of line, and McCoy says, "So are you." And then there's a pause, <laughs> and then and then he turns back and says, "Sir, sir," and it's <laughs> yeah. you know completely uh, you know. Obviously, it has no real respect behind it, and right. that's and that's funny. But again, it's taking place during this tense uh, battle for the command of the ship. Yeah, and then M- M- McCoy gets to do one of his uh, "I'm a doctor, not a right." Yes, things, and so uh, well, let's see what was it is "I'm a doctor, not a mechanic" or something right. like that. When right, he, and and so that's funny. That's one of the moments where it's uh it it happens in a uh at a point in the episode where it's not quite as <laughs> everything going wrong around them when when he makes his joke but sure sure i was going to mention one other funny thing which is my least favorite oh, okay perfect <laughs> well they do this thing they had this uh sort of running trope uh that they liked to have lighthearted endings on the episode right but the the problem with those always was that depending on how harsh the episode was, then these little quips at the end 
could seem kind of forced or, or you know too soon. Yeah. And so in this uh, at the end of this one, Kirk says something about that he's glad that they only found one of these things. Right. Because I found one quite sufficient. And then he and and, and he's smirking about it. Right. Like he's, he's making a little joke. And it's like Cue the but goofy music and yeah. Right. Yeah. Although just, you know, a little while before they watched Matt Decker commit suicide while trying yeah. to atone for the death of over four hundred people <laughs> yeah, right. from his ship. And so it's kind of one of those things we just want to say too soon. It's no there'll be no triple at all, I'll say that much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I like the moment where uh, Kirk is sort of coming up with this plan. And, of course, um, if you destroy a Federation starship uh, with antimatter or, or with a hull breach or, or sorry, a core breach, it, it's, it's described in terms of megatons. So it's going to create uh, a 97 megaton explosion. And Spock says, no, it'll be a 97.835. <laughs> and Kirk's yeah. like, all right, Spock, yeah. okay, <laughs> I roll. Uh, Kirk is really kind of mopey in this episode. He has a lot of kind of low-key deliveries. He's got a great line where he's telling Scotty, you know, you, you worry about your miracles, I'll worry about mine. And you have to believe that he's he's ruminating on, well, the death of his friend and also the, the pressure of, of command, um, having his mm-hmm. own 430 uh, crew members that he has to look after. Um, so much so that he, he puts himself in harm's way at the end. I mean, it's a Kirky thing to do, but he didn't have to really do that. You, you can imagine that they'd find some way to remote control the ship or, or something like that, but he he maintains that he has to stay there. And I think yeah. it sort of it parallels um, Decker's sacrifice as well, but, but Kirk keeps it together, and he also succeeds because uh, he relies on his crew instead of kind of going off on his own. Mm-hmm. Um, even though the transporter is cranky, as Scotty <laughs> describes it. <laughs> and this episode confirms again, uh, this might, might be the first instance of this, but it's really easy to steal a shuttle from the Enterprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, they need to lock the keys up, like at a valet stand, because those things are flying yeah. out of the shuttle bay, All literally. the time. Yeah. And even a century later on the Enterprise D, they had the same problem. People right. are yeah, ex- exactly, yeah. Oh, Somebody yeah. is always uh, stealing a shuttle. He reminded me that Scotty had a great line uh, when Kirk asks him if he'd be able to rig the engines to explode. And Scotty says, the shape they're in, it's hard to keep them from exploding. Right, yeah, their natural <laughs> state is exploding at this point, yeah. Uh, well, as we come to the ex- end of the episode, uh, did you have any uh, parting shots, any last thoughts about the episode? I'd like to give a shout out to the score of the episode. Oh, yes, the, yes. The music was fabulous. and it the really is great. The... Uh, the, the recurring theme that comes on whenever the doomsday machine is on screen. Yeah. The sort of countdown theme. Yeah. So yeah. it was the, uh, the composer. Yeah. It, very... it, it almost works. It, it's almost, it's like as iconic as like the jaws music that whenever the shark yeah, is on screen, right. yeah. kind of got that same pacing that just makes you start tensing up. It's uh great. Yeah. Uh, uh, I love the episode. I, I love its focus on the, the chain of command um, for a, original series episode it's a little less space humanism and a little more about the ins and outs of a paramilitary organization Mm -hmm. um, where these outsized personalities have to cleave to this code of conduct Um, i also wanted to mention that i'd mentioned von neumann probes before and i think von neumann was making something of a point um, i think in in positing the idea of a self-replicating probe because i think his idea was um we don't see any or we haven't seen any, you know, in our solar system or in our galaxy. And the fact that we have never seen one 
would seem to be a definitive negative answer to whether there's life out there and that we're alone because on the timeline of, of like the galaxy, some mm-hmm. race at some point would have had to have had this idea and have the time and resources to implement it. So uh, do you think that that is a, is a definitive way in on whether there's life on other worlds or not? I don't think so. There's so many variables involved that I, I tend not to, uh, to go for those things. Um, sure. even though I, I mean, I recognize the logic behind it, um, of, of saying, well, why haven't we heard something yet? Why haven't we seen something? But yeah. I don't know. There's just, you know, there's so much time and distance involved that there could be any number of reasons to, uh, explain, uh, why we haven't encountered some sort of evidence of life out there if there is life out there and i tend to think that there is it just seems to be uh, that the odds would be in its favor given the vast number of possibilities that are presented in the universe but uh, uh, that's one thing that's been so exciting about this weird uh, star that's been uh, talked about lately where they're seeing uh, um uh, variations in in uh, the brightness of a star that doesn't fit any previous theory, and some people have said, well, maybe there's some sort of uh, maybe there's some sort of you know Dyson sphere construction around this star that's causing uh, these weird uh, changes in in light. Sure, and you know it's uh, reaching pretty far to uh, you know it's it's kind of like assuming the the backstory of the Doomsday Machine. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, I I remain hopeful that that there is something out there, and that someday we actually will somehow find something that seems like conclusive evidence, even if we don't, you know, shake hands with the Vulcans like in Star Trek. Right. Uh, yeah, I think there's another school of thought too that says that no no race must have done this because if if one had and it functioned as suggested, then within just a few million years, the entire galaxy would just be von Neumann probes in a berserker (laughs) scenario. So it's a good thing maybe they haven't. I also like that idea of what you mentioned about us speculating about the Dyson Sphere thing, that we just, it's very perhaps um, humanocentric, but we would just assume that other races would do what we would do. I mean, if we had the resources, we would build a Dyson Sphere, so mm-hmm. of course they would, which is maybe not the best way to conceive of other races, uh, other alien races, but I guess it would be if we want a hope of understanding them or being able to communicate <laughs> with them. So, Well, uh, for reporting for duty a second time, your rank will be advanced to that of a full lieutenant with all the rights and privileges owed thereto. And I know <laughs> last time uh, you said that you were working in the Department of Action Figures, the <laughs> yes. Collectibles Not Toys Division, I believe the Open Box Bureau. How are things down there? <laughs> I'm, I, I'm still in withdrawal from uh, action figures, actually, in, in, in my personal life because I haven't been able to make the uh, the time or budget for rebuilding all my shelves in the oh. new house that I moved in a year ago. Okay. And so all of my action figures are still uh, boxed up and in storage. Okay. I, I do have a handful of new action figures I've gotten <laughs> over the last year that are uh, around, but uh, otherwise things are kind of thin. Okay. Well, uh, Lieutenant Pearson, thanks for joining me once again to talk about Star Trek and the Star Trek universe. If people want to continue the conversation, and they can, at at EISTpod on Twitter and the Enterprising Individuals Facebook page, where can people find you online? 
They can start by just going to my website, www.yashure.net. That's Y-E-A-H-S-U-R-E. And that has links to some of my other websites. Well, I, I only have one other web- website, but I have a separate website for Generations Geek, generationsgeek.com for the uh, podcast. And I'm on Facebook and Twitter and all that sort of stuff, usually just under my own name. So if you search for Scott Pearson, you should be able to find me. Great. Um, and you had mentioned that you had a, a new job. Did you want to talk about that at all? Yeah, it's it's fun. I'm uh, working uh, for Modifius Studios. They are a gaming company out of England, and they have the new uh, rights to create a Star Trek role-playing game. Oh, boy. And so this is due to come out uh, next summer sometime. Okay. Let's see. They have a Conan game. Okay. I, right. <laughs> I, I think they have a uh, some sort of Lovecraft or Cthulhu game. Sure. Uh, they've done a John Carter stuff, you know. So they've they've done a lot of work in uh, various uh, franchises that uh, started in other formats. Sure. And uh, so. I'm working for them, uh, basically just reviewing the game scenarios and making sure that uh, it doesn't contradict anything in canon. Okay, okay. The, the dreaded canon that uh, <laughs> right <laughs> that drives uh, many fans insane, and 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 you get into huge debates about what is or isn't. <laughs> canon. Sure, it keeps us all going. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'll have to uh, keep an eye out for that, and also I'll be looking forward to hearing your episode on Star Trek Beyond. Uh, when can we expect that to be out? Uh, any day now, okay. uh, I would say it, um, I haven't, I haven't gotten a specific, uh, release date and it kind of, uh, varies the, um, at, over at the chronic rift network, there are so many podcasts. Yeah. And so it, the, uh, John drew that, that runs the network kind of spaces things out so that there's not a, uh, like 15 new episodes on a day. <laughs> and right. yeah. yeah, and and so sometimes I, I try to get the episode to him around the the end or beginning of the month. He has the new podcast sometime in the next week. I would expect it to uh, to end up in the in the rotation and 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 be available for streaming and download. Sounds great, Scott. Thanks again for joining me on the show. Oh, you're welcome. We are signing off for now. Hailing frequencies closed. It's on your mind.